0: you're listening to club management i'm your host shannon dawson and on this show we chat with artists industry professionals and djs on how they're changing their communities through music you can listen to the show on any of your favorite streaming platforms like soundcloud spotify or apple podcasts just type club management and this is episode 44 Episode 44 of the Club Management Podcast has arrived, and thank you all so much for listening to the last episode with the playlist. I see you guys running up the playlist on Current, so thank you so much. And this week marks a special episode for us here at Club Management, so I want to jump right into the show. I had the chance to speak to someone who has played a really vital role in my DJ career and music journey, and I've been waiting to drop this episode for a while, partially because I really wanted to take my time in producing this story, and one half of me was really in shock because I had a chance to talk to him. So I'm honored to share an incredible chat I had with producer and musician Paris Mitchell, who is a paramount figure of Dance Mania, a label that we love and we talk about so much on this show. From 1986 to 1999, Dance Mania pioneered an incredible moment in Chicago House history. And the label showcased a number of incredible sounds throughout its existence, from classic house, tracks, and hip house. But fans have grown to love the label for the ghetto house sound that emerged in
1: 1994.
0: Last year, I had the honor of chatting with Dance Mania founder Ray Barney about the label's history. And Mr. Barney gushed about everyone from Paul Johnson and DJ Funk. To Eric Martin, and DJ Dion. But there's one person that was with him from the start of it all. And according to Ray, Paris Mitchell was his right-hand man since the label's inception. Mitchell, who was recorded under a number of different monikers, from Victor Romeo, The Dance Kings, and The Paris Mitchell Project, continuously adapted and shaped his prototypical sound throughout the label's existence. From hip house and vocal house, and even his more stripped-down drum machine experiments, Mitchell kept fans peeled to the dance floor, waiting for more. But things almost ended for the underground house icon before they even materialized. In 1986, Paris tried to put out a few records with Rocky Jones at DJ International and Larry Sherman of Tracks. Both failed attempts. Mitchell almost gave up on making house music until he met Ray Barney a year later. It was Mr. Barney who released his first house record, You Can't Fight My Love, under his Victor Romeo alias. And from there, the rest was history. As dance mania began to take shape, Mitchell's sound became raw as the dawn of Ghetto House emerged in the 90s with tracks like Masturbation and My Favorite, All Night Long, a song off the iconic Paris Mitchell project. I spoke to Paris about the early days of dance mania, going on tour with Club Nouveau, and the inspiration behind some of his most iconic house records.
1: Ray started out um, being a fan of vocal house and different things like that. And the label was never uh, geared towards one particular style of house music as much as it was like, you know, well, I met Ray Barney and I think it was, uh, the year of 80, it have been the spring of 87. And, um, and I had, I had a, I had a record I was working on and, um, a good friend of mine, uh, introduced me to him, uh, named Vince Lawrence. And he, uh, he thought we'd be a good match. And, um, Ray was right in the middle of putting out some other records and he told me to come back. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, we went back and he I, we actually didn't ask him we just put a we walked in the shop and just put on a, put on the cassette <laughs> and, he, and he he asked for the record because he didn't know it was, you know he thought it was pretty good when he heard it mm. but um it was a it wasn't a, it was he Ray had two labels he had another label called bright star that mr barney his father um was head of
0: yeah
1: and so that was the first label he started releasing music on it was called bright star records right and it was yeah. It was so so. It was more it was more vocal house and production and different things like that. And then I think that he really just started pouring all this energy right around 1988 into Dance Mania. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was it was it was kind of like the segue of ghetto house and the regular vocal house and tracky stuff because although Lou Lewis was still back in the early the, the 80s, he was still making really hardcore track tracky house for clubs um uh in chicago wow. you know yeah yeah but still didn't have the name yet. The, the genre that particular genre didn't have that name yet
0: right you know
1: like the west side of chicago like the factory and some other places they used to favor that style yeah. more yeah more so than um they like the early house stuff from like the farley and the and you know, and guys like that was, they were they making more traditional house stuff. Steve Hurley and those guys was making more traditional. House does kind of like a spin off of disco.
0: Yeah. I actually I want to talk a little bit about that time period before the dawn of Ghetto House. Um, so you were making a lot of music around nineteen eighty four to nineteen eighty five, uh, you know, with Diva's Get Up and so many more classics. There's another tune that I love that you, you came out with around that time. I think the rapper's name is Zavo. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool Devo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those tracks were amazing.
1: Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, we were um, we were experimenting. Yeah, Get Up was on Express Records out of Detroit mm. with Cliff Thomas. That was probably one of the only uh, other only labels I've ever did a record for, independent record for, outside of my remix work. You know, a lot of stuff I did on the remix side. I did some stuff with Janet Jackson, Whitney Houston, and wow. some different things like that. But outside of outside of the major label work I did, I was I didn't really do I didn't really. Jump from label to label. I kind of stuck with Dance Mania because that was home. That's like home. That was home for me. You know. Yeah, yeah, of course. And yeah, but the early earlier days. um, See, my thing was this: the reason why I was making you know um, more musical house music back when I first started because I wasn't a DJ until 1989. I didn't start DJing until 89. Yeah, so I started. I got a late start compared (laughs) compared to some of my constituents. So, they were already spinning. Like my cousin, he taught me how to how to DJ. Um, in the summer of '89, when I got, when I came off tour with Club Nouveau, this band called Club Nouveau, and I played guitar, keyboards, and little keyboards and bass on tour with Club Nouveau.
0: That's awesome! Um, like the I I got five on it. People, well, they sampled the original.
1: No, no, no. Club Nouveau is the original.
0: Right, that's what I'm saying. They sampled the original track from Club Nouveau. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Club Nouveau, Lean On Me, uh, Jealousy, Rumors," Why You Treat Me So Bad. Yeah, <laughs> so in 80, 89, January 89 to March, we toured Southeast Asia, so I was gone. Wow. Away. When I got back, I I started dabbling in DJing. So when I started dabbling in DJing, I kind of took my musician head off a little bit, mm-hmm. and I started... Um, you know, I learned how to DJ, and I realized from learning how to DJ that it wasn't a lot of the records that I that I really enjoyed mixing. They weren't really oversaturated with m- musical elements, mm. or they or they had the right breaks. Um, there were a lot of records back in the nineties, or, or late eighties, early late eighties, especially mm-hmm. early nineties, and and they were commercial, real commercial house records, and those weren't the ones I enjoyed playing a lot, like Black Box. And those records like that, they were really big records, but I really didn't enjoy those as much as I enjoyed, like, Lil' Lewis, maybe Marshall Jefferson, Move Your Body, or, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the more raw stuff.
0: Right, yeah.
1: Yeah, so after after that, I realized that's what I wanted to make. mm -hmm. I started doing music because I wanted to be a musician. Gotcha. In 76, I started, uh, I studied, um, I went to music school for guitar theory. Mm. So I was a disco kid. Yeah, I used to love disco so much that, and you know, where I grew up, I grew up in a neighborhood called Beverly in Chicago. And for some strange reason, it's like everybody in that neighborhood had at least one kid in the family that was a musician. I thought that everybody was supposed to be a musician. Because mm-hmm. cause it seemed like that's all that was around you, you know. And I went to a school called Vanderpool. And it's uh, it turned into a performing, arts, um, a, perf- a performing arts school at one time. Um, but then, um, I think now it's something else, but, uh, they encouraged us to be creative. So they would let Mm -hmm. us bring our instruments to school and do performances and different things like that.
0: You know, I think that around this time, it was also a little bit tricky, right? Because you had the issues going on with tracks records too, and, you know, they don't necessarily have the best reputation with Larry Sherman. Um and I had read somewhere that you had an unfortunate run in with uh Sherman at one point.
1: Oh, that was very early on in my when that I first say. decided I was gonna make a house record. Right. Um, before I be, well, right before I met Ray, I um I I talked to Rocky Jones from DJ International mm. and um you know, great guy and you know, uh it was I guess it was a great label, but it was oversaturated. It's like he had he had like a, a whole lobby full of people waiting to get in to be waiting to be heard, and I said, "Well, you know, this is just kind of." And I played my demo. He said, "Well, go finish it up." Mm. And I told a friend of mine, Bam Bam, that they're taking me over there. That I'm not interested. I'd like it's just too much going on over there. Mm. And um, so I um, I was doing the an R and B demo at the time. My, my older brother. He had he had loaned me three thousand dollars to go cut some music in a professional recording studio. Wow. Uh, yeah, nineteen eighty six, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I had a little money to spend. I ran out of money, uh, from cutting, and I didn't finish my demos. And um, the owner of the studio, named Reed Himes, at the time was a studio called Chicago Tracks, not same as chicago tracks records Mm. and uh he gave me some spec time and he told me don't worry about it if you sell a record if you get it placed then you can pay the tab but up until then just go ahead and finish your record what you have to do so i decided well i'm not going to finish my r&b records. let me make a house record one of my best friends who passed away kevin irving jack and house he kind of convinced me to do a house record so i said let me try that you know so i i Tried it because I really loved disco in the '70s, so I said this is not going to be hard. So, um, I I made a house record with a friend of mine named Dane uh, Stewart at the time his name was Dane Rowway, and um, we we had taken a demo to Larry Sherman. It wasn't finished, and he made a, he he was he struck up a deal with us for a certain amount of money, and once we finished it, well, I, we finished it in the studio tab. He promised us thirty five hundred dollars wow. and studio tab was like about two thousand dollars so we figured, okay, we pay the studio tab and we got a little money to split you know right. it's cool so we finished it up and he said, okay uh I, he said he said, okay, cool he he criticized the record for kick drum and he tried to downplay it like you know I'll take it, I really don't like it oh. you know and then and then he said, but I'll give you 25 hours twenty five hundred for I said it's not what you said." Mm. He, said, uh, he said, yes, I did. I said, no, you said you were going to give her 3500 And he said, no, I did not. Mm. And so, yeah, so then he said, then I said, okay, we'll forget it. You know, we'll just take it. We'll take it. Since we're already in this predicament with the studio, right. we need to pay the studio. Well, long story short, he, he told me, he said, well, you bring me the real and I'll pay you. I said, well, I can't bring you the real because I have to pay the studio first. But I said, if you pay the studio... I'm not worried about it because you just pay them and I'll, they'll give me whatever, whatever's left right. from the bill. He said, well, no, I'm not going to pay them. He said, I'll give you a check once you bring me to, once you bring me to real." Uh, real. And I, yeah. So I said, well, you know, Ravish Sherman had a bad reputation of writing checks that would bounce all over the city. Right. So he would write you a check and it would bounce all over the place. And, you know, you get in trouble with the banks. So I knew from his reputation that if I, went to the studio and got him the reel and he gave me a check to cash to pay the studio Mm -hmm. that the check was going to bounce and that's almost like stealing you know Of so so i told him i can't do that so i left it alone and i decided i wasn't going to do any house after all i said well forget it if this is what i got to deal with i'm not going to do it so a friend of mine vince lawrence he was the one who came and invited me down to a party he was having a listening party with some labels and Ray Barney just happened to be there. So he introduced me to Ray Barney. Mm-hmm. Then um, I called Ray, told me he wasn't looking for anything. And then Vince just happened to call me one day. He said, what are you doing with that record? It's pretty good. I said, nothing. I don't want to do house music anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> said, so, so he said, he said, well, he said, well, uh, we're going to come pick you up. So he came by with uh, my partner on the record at the time. And he said, bring your cassette. So I, I brought the cassette with me. He took the cassette we got to Ray Barney's shop and he just put it in the cassette player, turned the music off, like completely like killed the vibe of the store because they were playing the radio, <laughs> threw the cassette in there and Ray Barney stopped doing what he was doing and say, hey, what's that? And I was like, oh, we're in trouble now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm getting ready to leave and Vince goes up to talk to him and I'm turning towards the door. He said, hey, he said, is that your record? I said, yeah. He said, what are you doing with it? And I said, well, nothing now. I said, I was supposed to give it to Larry Sheep. If I can get it out, Ray Barney said, OK, well, I'll do it. He's like, I'll, he said, let me know what it is you need and I'll take care of it. So Ray went and took care of the studio and he uh, he gave me a little advance for the record and it, it did pretty good. It it it, wow. it got rotation in several, uh, several cities.
0: This is a You Can't Fight My Love, right?
1: Yeah, it did pretty good. You know, it did pretty good because it had a little go-go type of feel to it, also a little Latin things. So it did good in Washington and Detroit and some other places in regular rotation. So, you know, that's what that's what started. That's what started me in this whole genre, and that's what got me away from Larry Sherman. Ray Barney got me away from Larry Sherman. I can take-
0: You and Ray literally grew up together running Dance Mania. And when I spoke to Mr. Barney last year, he told me how you used to work at Barney's One Stop and how much of an integral part you played in the label's development.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was working there. And uh, I used to see everybody that come, came downstairs, the Ray Barney's shop, the way it was made the, back then, the shop downstairs, uh, you, had to come to the, you had to come past by me. So you got upstairs. So I saw everybody coming in play, that would play demos and stuff for
0: them. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. So this is actually an interesting turning point, right? Because then you have all these guys that are coming in to, you know, show Mr. Barney their, their demos and whatnot. Um, and then I hear, was it true that uh, DJ Funk was the one who kind of coined the term Ghetto House?
1: You know what? I think it was him. I think it was him or everybody been. I know he was the first one that kind of used it because look i know it was was either him or it was somebody that talked to ray because ray told me that he had a conversation with one of his buyers Mm. and they said hey man you got some of that hardcore ghetto stuff that ghetto house sound of stuff and it was before a record was out called ghetto house and i don't know if it came from ray through dj funk or it came from dj funk but i know I heard it out of Ray's mouth first, mm. but the record I saw was DJ Funk using the name first. Wow. Ray told me that it came from one of his buyers. who asked Um, for some of the raw ghetto stuff
0: i mean to a certain extent it was true ray was telling me everyone uh you know everyone was from the ghetto they were making these tracks in the ghetto and that's literally what it was really
1: exactly that's exactly what it was that's exactly what we were doing too the record shop was in the ghetto you know
0: (laughs) yeah mr barney and your story in particular is just so fascinating to me because Barney's One Stop at one point was one of the largest distributors in the Midwest, right?
1: Oh, yeah. He was the big, he was like, like if you were there, like, like Byron Stingley also worked at the shop, right? Wow. So if you were there on any, like everybody that was anybody in the music industry had to come to Barney's Records. Right. Like if you would, like I've met uh, Ralph Tresman there, Ice T, uh, Big Daddy Kane, what? uh, like, like everybody, I mean, yeah. the first time I've heard Outkast. These guys come in the shop. This is before the record was released right. and they come in the shop and they hand me a cassette and say, Hey, can you put this on? And I listen to it and it sounds so incredible. And not for, not for a couple of years later that I realized who that was. <laughs> <I> said, that's, <laughs> that's what the, you know, and it sounds amazing. So you'd walk up in the shop. If you walk upstairs, you would hear Ray play, like he would play the dozens with Scarface. Mm. <laughs> like they would just be up there playing. It. And I walked in one day and they were, your mama's so fat. And, and I look, I'm like, and I'm laughing. Then I turn around and say, hey, Ray, that's Scarface you're talking to. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's wild. Yeah, that's a really, really cool experience, right? How old were you at the time when you were working at Barney's One Stop? 24. Wow. That's huge. So you're working at Barney's One Stop Records. And then around that same time, did your sound start to kind of morph into the ghetto house realm around that time?
1: Well, I worked there right before I went on tour of Club Nouveau. Okay. And then I left. I started making like, you know, more jazz, like rhythm, uh, rhythm, rhythm. I did more jazzy type stuff. After that, Ray Barney came to me in 1993. I was working at the shop again. And mm. 1993, I was working downstairs. I was the manager of the retail, and they had the wholesale upstairs. And Ray said, he said to me, he said, "Hey Victor, why don't you, why don't you strip down some of the music you're doing, man?" Mm. <laughs> and he, I said, "You think so?" He said, "Yeah, man. You know, uh, you don't have to go in the studio every time and make a big production, you know." And I said no. I said you want me to make some more tracky stuff. He said yeah. It was it was it was because of Ray Barney's urging, like, hey man, you know, make, make some makes some tracky.
0: That tracky stripped down sound that Chicago is so famous for is really what lured me into discovering house music and your music in general, you know, tracks like Hercules Seven Ways and Jesse Saunders on and on are just so special to me because they really have that minimal beat pattern, but the bass still makes you want to move.
1: Marsha Jefferson, that, everybody called it Hercules, but it's really Marsha Jefferson. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is right. You know, like a lot of the guy, you know, that you have different uh, eras of, of dance mania where, like, where I saw everybody change over I noticed like when DJ Funk came in and then I noticed when uh, uh, Dion and those guys came in mm-hmm. and I noticed when Waxmaster and those guys start coming in. And so I just saw it change over from the. I was there throughout the whole thing pretty much yeah
0: yeah i was gonna say that that is what's so captivating also about your story is that you were literally there from the bright star days to like the end of dance mania essentially so you literally got to see that entire change throughout the decade you know
1: yeah yeah i was kind of like there with ray and you know i would i would just pop in and if i wasn't working at the shop at that time i just pop in and i just sit around and we talk. but mostly i was downstairs i saw the guys like even they didn't even though they didn't know that it was me, mm. they would walk right past. A lot of times, they would walk right past me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I never said, hey, I'm sorry." A lot of times, I see them coming and going, just coming and going, you oh, know?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's probably so many people walking in and out. It's hard to, you know, catch everybody's yep. name and stuff like that.
1: I um, don't know how Ray did it. I honestly don't. I was like, wow, Ray, you really... And like Ray tells me, he said, well, he wasn't doing it for any particular reason, but he, like, what, what he did for the for the genre and what he you know what he created what he was a part of what he created it's amazing it's like i had i had you know what and he's so mod it's he's so modest Mm -hmm. that i go i go ray well you know (laughs) (laughs) at, at some point in time you really just gotta realize you know what you did
0: You know, that's so funny that you said that because when I interviewed Mr. Barney, I told him, you know, you were essentially a mentor to a lot of people who we consider to be house legends today. Um, And he's just so humble about the whole thing, which I love so much.
1: All the way from Derek May to Kevin Saunders to Kashmir. He distributed all these guys' records that probably wouldn't have had that outlet if it wasn't for him.
0: Really incredible, you know? Um, Sometimes I feel like Ray's story, and your story as well, sometimes gets glanced over in house music history. Like, you guys were important for that period. You're important now, too, you know? So I'm really honored to have these conversations and recording them, because they just... Th- this means a lot to me. This is a piece of history. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have we have definitely a, a camaraderie. We, we've we been friends. We've been close friends ever since we met, Ray and I. Like right? Yeah, we've been close friends ever since... Like he's always Ray's the kind of person. You'd be you'd be surprised if you were on his label and if you were you know doing stuff with him. Ray was Ray was really into the music and he if he liked what he did he would really. But I think what was more important to Ray was who you who you were as a person.
0: um so the Paris Mitchell project comes out later but was life in the underground the first release that you made
1: oh life in underground under Paris Mitchell yeah uh life in un- no computer computer that's right yeah that was the first release I made under per- Paris Mitchell mm-hmm. I was just yeah, sitting on my back porch at my apartment at the time and my, uh, I think my son was probably about a year or two years old at the time. So his name is Paris, too. So mm. I said, hey, I'll just call the director Paris Mitchell.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Around that time when you released Computer, I noticed that things started to shift for the label. And that's when I started to hear more of those raunchy lyrics underneath those Raw House productions. Um, What I love so much about that era in particular is that you know those tracks were just so much fun and hilarious, um, and I can only imagine being there and hearing those songs being played around Chicago during the beginning stages of what we now know as Ghetto House.
1: It was, it, you know, being being at the parties, people, they, I mean, I mean, like it was, you'd be surprised the music that the ghetto listened to. It's almost normal. So you get the kids and they just start footworking. I still hear right now to this day. Sometimes some of these tracks like work it and. Mm. You know, and all that stuff that we did, I still hear this stuff blaring from car speakers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the young producers now are sampling a lot of those tracks, so they're being they're mixing up the vocals, they're mixing up bits from the song, and like making it their own. You know, essentially.
1: Yeah, look, Nicki Minaj. Uh, not Nicki, but um, what was the girl's name? Cardi B. Mm-hmm. She just took uh, that's Moses House Franksky.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
1: so. So, we're getting a lot of that too, um, where some of the artists that are doing trap and rap stuff, they're grabbing a lot of the lyrical contents from the records. Like Jermaine Dupri did a rendition of Ghetto Shout Out.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, so they're taking a lot of our stuff, the vocal stuff and the concepts, and they're doing a lot of licensing and stuff, sample clearances and stuff. Yeah.
0: Interesting. That is so interesting. For you, as somebody that got to experience the factory, which was, I mean, an iconic venue for a lot of the producers coming up in the scene to play and test their tracks out. What was it like going there?
1: A sweat box. (laughs) Like uh, a little hole in the wall, ginger sweat box that everybody loved to hang out and party to. (laughs) Yeah, it was a little hole in the wall sweat box that just had raw energy it was safe back then it wasn't like sky was pretty pretty messy now but back then you can actually go out and have a good time and just party and everybody go about their way
0: so there wasn't it wasn't like a big place it was just little what was the sound system like
1: in, in that place it was incredible Ooh. but it was it wasn't that big of a place Ooh. yeah it, it sounded really good in there. And uh, unfortunately. It, it, it caught fire and burned down and um yeah. and the owner w- was killed and, yeah
0: jesus christ that's so terrible
1: yeah but it was a little it was a little sweat box in the sounds when quick, quick McClaude was there you mm-hmm. know that was he was more like the resident Dj and you'd have guests like Tyree and um some other guys that would go through there spin jam and hmm. jam and Jero is one of the uh underrated. Uh, great of the whole ghetto scene, like he's really, it's like he's really incredible.
0: Well, I love Jam and Joe too, um but yeah. So wow, I can only imagine just being there and then hearing those tracks on the sound system and being like, "What the heck is this?" But like, still moving, you know?
1: Yeah, they they loved it. They loved it. So you know, for us, it was just like we when we were in the studio, or we were creating it. We would just laugh and. I mean, it was just fun to us. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say those sessions in the studio, what were they like? Because, you know, you didn't have the fancy Ableton or Logic back then. What were you recording on? Like a dat tape or?
1: Well, now my transition came like this. I was recording on two inch. Wow. 24 track. Yeah, I was recording. I was fortunate enough to do that uh, quite a few times, but. Like, there were a lot of records that we made from the console, or should I say from the PA system, Mm. straight to the deck machine. So a lot of the stuff we don't have stems and files on Mm. because it went straight from the machine to the two track. And there was no stems or more two tracks on them.
0: Wow. So if you made a mistake, what would happen? Did you have to, like, start all
1: over again? We did it all day, every day. We didn't even make mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like for yeah you know, that's what we did all day every day it's like me and uh dj funk and i we did a record called um follow me right follow me ghetto, follow me ghetto and right. when i tell people that's a live recording and i said we didn't even rehearse it and i told the guy in england that he's say you bullshit and get out of here follow me follow me follow me follow me follow me I said, the only thing you hear on there that's sequenced is the uh, 808 and the nine. I said, "Uh, the 808 and the 303. I said, but the 808 wasn't really sequenced like that. DJ Funk was actually programming it as we were recording. And he was actually rapping while he was programming the drums. And I played live keyboard. We didn't have a sequencer. So I played, I actually played the Juno 106 while I was doing the uh, 303. Everything was live.
0: Jeez, are you
1: serious? And, you know, you know, he said, hey, do you know da-da-da? And I said, yeah. And I, and I you know, I know key signatures and stuff. So I remembered the key signature of, of the record. Mm-hmm. And I just sat there, and I, I because I knew the key signature, I knew the chords that were going to be in the key of the song. So I said, okay, well, you know, and I sat there, and I programmed the 303, and he set up the mic. Uh, and we looked at each other, and we that's why you hear talking on the record because we didn't rehearse it, so we had to cue each other as we recorded. <laughs> so we, yeah, so you hear us cueing, cueing each other, like break, like here, and that was the first time we ever did it. Like we didn't do a rehearsal, we didn't do anything. We just said let's do a record, and we didn't make any mistakes.
0: Oh my god, that's amazing! Um, let's talk a little bit about the ghetto shout out because that was also a huge one for you and Waxmaster. Um, and I read somewhere that you didn't know that Daft Punk took that track as the inspiration behind teachers until like 2009. Is that true? Yeah,
1: <laughs> I had no idea they did that record. What? And uh, yeah, I started a Facebook page in 2009 and people started reaching out to me like, hey, man, are you the guy that made this, that, and the other? And I said, yeah, why? What? Oh, man, we got a proposition for you. And then people just started coming out of the woodworks trying to do work with me. And I was like, yeah, this is really odd. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Ray Barney nor I, we wasn't aware that we had any kind of impact, you know, in the in the house genre. So it was a bit of a surprise. So what happened was um, I saw the post somewhere. Somebody posted it. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I just happened to watch the video. And I said, hey, that sounds like get a shout out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then he started calling out all the guys' names on the record. Then he got to mine. Then I said, hey, this is kind of like our record here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does sound very similar, yeah.
1: Just the interpolation, but I was like, it's cool. I really I you know, it wasn't like a rip-off. It was just like they were paying homage and I really thought it was cool. So mm. um so I reached out to Wax have you heard this? And he's like, Yeah, you know and I was like, Well wow, I said I didn't even know about this. I had been away from house music for a while. Mm. You know, and uh, I was doing everything I did some records with Johnny P on Virgin. Uh, we were doing bump J on Atlantic and and I started going back to doing uh, mainstream uh, major label stuff for a while. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of left the house genre alone. Good. And then I, yeah, I started doing remixes. I did Johnny Jackson, this other stuff, that other stuff. And um, I did a record called Stand Up that went number one in uh, Billboard for our group we had called Love Tribe. Mm-hmm. It was a house record. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so I got away from the. The independent house stuff and the doing, so I lost track of what, what was going on got you
0: yeah is it yeah. The, is it that you just wanted to try something different?
1: you know, like being a musician it it you know like sometimes I get a little frustrated, right, mm. and um, I kind of like want to play my guitars, you know right yeah, I kind of like want and i I noticed well, I can't play a lot of guitar stuff, but I can now because they got all this new technology where they got these midi guitars and synthesizer guitars so I can do a lot of good stuff with my guitar now Mm -hmm. um, that I couldn't do before. It was just straight guitar, you know? Um, So back then I just wanted to compose where I can actually compose a song and, you know, and I got melodies and chord progressions and key signatures. So sometimes I'll, I'll get a little um, uh, musically frustrated and I'll go, OK, I want to make a record now with music, you know, okay. where I want to write our a record arrangement with changes and stuff like that.
0: Producers and and musicians. That's what you guys do. So exactly. You know. I want to talk about two of my favorite Paris Mitchell tracks of all time, um, all night long, off the Paris Mitchell project, and work it off of Life in the Underground. These two projects draw a lot from this idea of experimentation that you were speaking about before. What was the creative process behind making these records?
1: You know, I was I was working on the Chicago tracks, but at the time, just through recording studio. At the time, I had already I didn't at the time I didn't need an engineer anymore. To cut, I knew the patch bay. I knew how I knew how I knew how to how to mix and everything already. Yeah. So I learned the I learned how to record on my own by this time. So Reed gave me a studio, a room with a Harrison console, all the patch bays, had AMS, you know, had all the best gear, microphones. That's why the mic. That's why on that EP, those two tracks are cut the way they cut because I had all the best mics. Mm. So out of everything that I started doing on two track, I did happen to cut that that EP on a two inch reel. So I actually cut that two-inch. And, um, you know, just being in the studio, I just had time to just be, feel creative. And I think that my inspiration came because one of the people that that really used to inspire me to, like, you know, try different things was Reggie Hall. Mm. Reggie Hall, he like, hey, man, you should try this. Hey, man, you should try that. And I'll try it. And then I had another guy, uh, Derek. We call him Shineson. Derek Pittman, uh, Musashi. And you know, they would inspire me to try different things and and throw ideas around and stuff like that. Now, um, with uh with with Waxmaster's uh you know, Shout out, he had a he had a record. Mm-hmm. Waxmaster had a record called um I don't know, he said it wasn't, but I think I don't know if it was called Project Shout Out. But anyway, he had a he had a record on his mixtape and it was shouting out uh it was shouting it was shouting out stuff and so Derek Pittman, he said, man, you got to hear this mixtape. And this guy got this record on that. You need to produce it. Mm-hmm. He said, you need to finish it and do some stuff to it. And I said, well, well I said, is it good? He said, yeah. He said, you just need somebody to produce it. And I said, OK, well, tell him to come down to the studio. And I was working on my EP. Mm-hmm. And so I never heard it. So I said, OK, what we got? So he had a sample. I won't, I won't mention the sample. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he had a sample. And I said, cool. So I started programming uh I had a little Casio drum machine, I started programming some drums around it and I said, Okay, so what's the concept? I didn't even listen to it before he got to the studio. Mm-hmm. I just said, Okay, so what's the concept? And he gave me an idea and I and so I just added a few things, I changed around a few things and added some lyrical contents to it and that's how we came up with ghetto shot. It started from Waxmaster idea, his bedroom that mm-hmm. he put on his mixtape. Wow. That we yeah, that we finished up in the studio. Yeah, um and uh, All Night Long came about just us being silly. And there was a record called, uh, I don't know if I should say it, but it's called Bitches and Money. Yes. And So after we finished the lyrics, Reggie was supposed to sing that song, too. But he read the lyrics and he said, I'm not going to sing this. this is a little- <laughs> he said, why don't you sing? So he told Derek, why don't you sing that one? He said, I did the other one. That's enough. Oh,
0: my goodness.
1: I'm more of a you know what I'm more of a producer songwriter. Like 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 I have to be careful sometimes. I had to tell a friend of mine to really stop sending me like his ideas because like by me being a producer. And like, you know, sometimes I'll hear something and don't know where it came from. And I'll, I'll accidentally put it in something.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, that's OK. Um, but so now, I mean, let's fast forward. As of 2019, you had came out with uh, a project with Nina Kravitz, which was what Feel My Butterfly. That was really, really dope. Really, really dope. Um, and you guys are close to one another. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's my friend. She's so beautiful. I know. Like, she has such a beautiful spirit. Have you ever met Nina?
0: I've never met her, but I'm a huge fan of her music and her DJ.
1: Oh, she's incredible. Incredible talent, too. Like, yeah, I love Nina. She's a really, really special person. Um, Yeah, we, 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 uh, she, she came to Chicago. um, She was going to New York to do a gig, and she said, well, while I'm in the States, and I have a couple, I'm going to come over a couple of days earlier. And we should collaborate and go record shopping. I said, cool. She wanted to visit the, the the basement that still at that time had a lot of the old Dance Mania catalog, right? Yeah. So I said, cool. We'll make a day of it, uh, a couple of days, and uh, we'll go cut some music. And um, so we went, and uh, she came in, and uh, I, I picked her up from the airport. And, you know, she was tired of the long flight, but she had a lot of energy. And so I think that day we went and stopped at, uh, we, did we stop at the base? No, no, we didn't stop at the basement that day. We went to the studio. We went and had a bite to eat. We went to the studio to go and see if we could create something, but it was late. She was a little fatigued from the flight. Mm-hmm. And she got in and she, she laid down some really nice vocal parts uh, for us to use later. And because she didn't have much time, and we were trying to fit everything in, we really didn't get a chance to finish a lot of stuff. Mm. So that was in 2016. Oh wow. So it, it, it sat around for three years. Whoa. So, so we have more stuff too from that session.
0: Wow. And then you're gonna put it out eventually, yeah?
1: Oh yeah, but yeah, put it out very soon. We have we're working on some really big stuff right now.
0: Whoa. Oh, this is awesome so what was like were you planning to like go on tour last year before the um pandemic hit what was
1: your what were you doing musically last year to be honest with you my plan my plan was to not even go out my plan was to sit down and make records i just mm-hmm. i just wanted to make records i didn't even really want to play anymore mm-hmm. live i didn't even want to travel anymore mm-hmm. i kind of wanted to sit down and focus on making records more and And the oddest thing about it, not saying that I, I mean, pandemic, of course, is terrible and we lost a lot of lives, but Mm. in, in kind of a strange way, it was kind of like, for me, it helped me to get, I had had no choice, but get focused on like being creative. Mm. Cause you can't do, I mean, I actually packed up my, my equipment, my DJ equipment, put it in the box. And now I just have my guitars and keyboards and stuff out.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah, so I'm just I'm my guitars, I play every day. I'm back with my jazz theory and studying my scales again. Yeah, so I'm back. But I'm going to what I'm going to do because I have I'm able to now blend all the elements correctly mm. of the tracky, the hardcore ghetto stuff with more musical stuff, jazz influence, scales and different I can actually I feel now I can actually blend it correctly now.
0: Mm. Interesting. Well, we can't wait. I can't wait to hear a Paris Mitchell set when things, you know, go back to some sort of normalcy for sure. Yeah.
1: I'm gonna it's gonna be more in the production than you hear it in the sets.
0: Yeah. Oh my goodness, I can't wait. Um you had mentioned the the basement that you and um Mr. Barney had kept all those really like sacred dance mania records uh at, but unfortunately it caught fire, yeah? Did you were you No, at- it
1: all it, oh, it did catch fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. No,
0: that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, were you guys able to salvage anything from that basement?
1: Now, this is what happened. Um, the basement where the records were originally didn't catch fire. They moved the records because what happened was Ray sold that building. And when he sold that building, mm-hmm. he moved the records to his basement. And then his building caught on fire. Oh, my God. Yeah. So so the Ray's records... That they moved from when Ray closed the shops down, they were in the basement of his dad's building, which was right across the street. Whoa. Yeah. So when Mr. Barney passed away, um, Ray sold the building. So when he sold the building, he moved everything to the basement of his home.
0: Oh, okay. And, then,
1: and yeah, and the, he has a building, too, a two-flat. So the basement of his home where he lives, that building caught on fire.
0: Oh my goodness. But the so the records are okay though. They they didn't get super damaged.
1: You know what? I haven't asked Ray I haven't asked Ray um since the fire happened. Because mm-hmm. to be honest with you, um when people started finding out that the basement was there, they started taking every everything that was good. You know, <laughs> Ray, I tell you, man, I tell you somebody's gotta be the most humble, modest person in the world. I had to go over there and I told Ray, you know, you know, we really shouldn't be uh letting these records go. <laughs> You're right.
0: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What was he? Hopefully you guys were getting some cash from it. Were people just taking them?
1: Well, uh, you have a lot of people in in, that are not really that. So what I found out was I won't name any names. There was a particular guy who owned a retail shop here. Mm -hmm. And Ray was very, Ray's an extremely trusted person, too, by the way. Mm -hmm. like He'll trust you. And if you mess him over, then he won't. Deal with you anymore. That's yeah. just how he does business. Right. He'll, give you, he'll give you enough rope to hang yourself, okay? <laughs> and if you hang yourself, then that's your, that's on you. Yeah. So there was a particular person that would go over to the basement that I found out. I forgot how I found out. Ray would give him access to the basement without anybody monitoring him. So he would go over there and he would cherry pick. And when he would come back to pay, it wasn't even Ray was only charging him a few bucks a record mm-hmm. for these records that was worth like on discard $30, $40 uh, per. Right. So, I told Ray because at the time Ray wasn't familiar with the value of them. I told Ray about discards and the value of the records, and I told him that well, when the guy when the guy is going over there, he's telling you he's getting ten records, but he's actually like getting forty.
0: Mmm. see
1: What? Yeah. He was doing stuff like this particular person I won't name any names, <laughs> and um, and there was some other people, and so Ray at that point he just started closing off the basement and but at this time after that it was kind of i want to say a little too late
0: oh my god oh no so like all the records were pretty much or the good records rather were just gone.
1: i found a few in there afterwards but pretty much the person who really knew what was going on before we realized what was going on they pretty much ramish through all of it and, and, and cherry picked and grabbed the greatest ones yeah damn
0: that is so terrible I was like, you know, because I go to Chicago often. I was hoping that maybe I could like go and buy some records from you
1: guys. Yeah, but <laughs> I, 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 I told Ray what was going on because Ray was busy with this. He has a, he has another shot. He has a health food shop, pretty successful health food shop. Yeah, and Ray, both Ray and I, we kind of got away from the independent dance scene. Like, like you know, we really wasn't paying any attention.
0: Man, I, I'm just so, 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 so inspired by you guys, and I'm I'm so happy that you're still doing what you love today. So um yeah so if if, i mean if people want to hear more about you and and find your music where do they find you on social media i guess
1: well you know you know i'm pretty terrible with social media (laughs) like i'm i'm like my agency that i'm um that i'm with they like used to get on my case about posting gigs and stuff Mm -hmm. because i'm i'm really i'm really the worst at interacting and stuff like that and i just think ah people don't want to hear this stuff you know i just go (laughs) i just go you know i just go well If they want to hear it, then, you know, I guess they'll find it. And so I'm kind of like that. So I don't do a whole lot of SoundCloud stuff, you know, posting mixes. And uh, uh, because sometimes I don't know, maybe it's not me. I think unless you really have something to talk about Mm -hmm. or you really it's really something newsworthy. I think that, I don't know, with me, I just feel real awkward about just being on there every day talking about myself.
0: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I also feel the same way. Um, but, you know, with work and stuff, since I'm so tapped in with, like, writing, I have to be on there interacting, but I also feel a little bit strange about social media, so don't don't feel alone by that, because I feel the same way.
1: I said, maybe I could talk in the third person and just say, yeah, hey. yay! You know, Paris Mitchell is doing this now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We're coming out of the interview between me and Paris Mitchell. Legendary, just legendary. This was another Club Management episode for the books. and truly honored to have uh, recorded this interview. Honestly, thank you guys for listening to the show. If this is your first time here at the podcast, please make sure you check out all of our archive shows here on SoundCloud or anywhere you get your podcasts. We also have a home clubmanagementpodcast.com where you can read up on our fabulous past guests. And you can also make a donation to the pod so that we can keep bringing you uh, the best audio content if you'd like. So much love to all of you listening and soaking up this history. I see we had a few downloads coming from Africa, Oceania as always, and a ton from the UK this time. So big love to you all out across the pond. Uh, yes. So until next time, please stay locked. We have some more incredible guests coming up in the next few months and I can't wait to share it all with you. So until next time.